0: more info now. Hey everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude
1: Tanneritos. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
2: Hi, I'm Giancarlo Esposito. And I'm here to introduce you to my new series, Parish. My character, Gray Parish, was a getaway driver. I'm I'm retired from a life, you know that. He's in a world over his head. Tell me about this driver job. And he's asked to start to figure things out. I did what you told me to. He will try to do what's right and seek justice. Parish, all new Sundays at 9 on AMC and stream on AMC+. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. In his first political race for U.S. Senate in 1972, a horn-rimmed, disheveled young socialist named Bernie Sanders lost badly, getting only 2% of the vote. In 1981, he had his first electoral victory by just barely becoming mayor of Burlington, Vermont, by 10 votes. By 2006, he was a popular congressman and easily won the national Senate seat he had chased decades before. And while he lost the Democratic Party nomination last year, Bernie Sanders has become someone with real influence in the party. His new book, Bernie Sanders' Guide to Political Revolution, gives others the tools to make change as well. In her new book, Hillary Clinton wrote that Sanders, quote, didn't get into the race to make sure a Democrat won the White House. He got in to disrupt the Democratic Party. It's an assessment Bernie Sanders
3: agrees with. I thought that it was absolutely imperative that the country needed to hear from somebody uh, who was uh, more progressive than Hillary Clinton, uh, there are ideas that absolutely needed to uh, get out there, uh, and that would not have gotten out there if a progressive was not in the race. But I guess, on a more personal level, do you stare down at this
2: black diamond ski run and say, "I'm? Do I have the energy? What no, fears or the doubts fact, that you have? You see,
3: we started in a different position. We started. I think the first polls had us at three, four, five percent. So it wasn't like we were in this race and, you know, we were at 48 percent and we were close to winning it. Uh, so for us, what the campaign was about was to, first of all, uh, formulate the positions that we believed in strongly. And many of those positions, by the way, uh, today are more or less mainstream, but they weren't when we began that campaign. For example? $15 an hour minimum wage. A trillion dollars to rebuild our crumbling infrastructure. Um, just a few years ago, I proposed a trillion. People said, oh, my God, that's much too much. 400 billion is about all that we can afford. Now, even Trump talks about a trillion dollars to rebuild our infrastructure. And, you do, and no fears, no doubts. I mean, you, I'm sure you must have had. I believe what I believe. And I believe the country has got to move in a much more progressive agenda Uh, I think we have to deal with the horrific levels of income and wealth inequality. We have to deal with a corrupt political system in which billionaires are able to buy elections. Uh, We have to address uh, the issue of climate change and transform our energy system. These are issues that I've been talking about for a very, very long time. These are issues that I think the majority of the American people believe in. And what motivated me was simply to go out and say, look, this is the reality facing America— We can't continue to have a situation where so few have so much and so many have so little. We can't continue a political system where the Koch brothers alone are able to spend hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars to buy elections. That's not what this country is supposed to be about. Well, those were my ideas. But what was interesting is how quickly it became apparent that millions and millions of people shared those ideas, that people wanted to think outside of the box, that they were prepared to look at more progressive solutions than what Democrats and Republicans have been bringing forward. And um, do you
2: ever ask yourself, if Hillary is likely the winner, do you think, she's probably going to win, so how do I influence her to express the opinions I want? I don't need to run if I can get her to do some but the only fraction way, of what the I the only way at...
3: you can do that is when people themselves respond to specific ideas, all right? What we found during the campaign, for example, just one example, is that the idea that the United States of America remains the only major country on earth not to guarantee health care to all people, okay? I live 50 miles away from Canada. They do it, as you know, throughout Europe. Health care is a right. And on top of that, in this country, we end up spending almost twice as much per capita. It's not like we're saving money. We're spending a fortune on health care per person. We pay by far the highest prices in the world for prescription drugs. Question, why aren't we doing what every other major country on earth is doing? Why do you think we're not? Well, obviously, it has to do with the power of the insurance companies and the drug companies and the whole medical industrial complex. They are enormously powerful. uh, But not the doctors themselves. Doctors are powerful too, but the insurance companies and the drug companies are far more powerful. And what you find is that the drug companies have spent hundreds— of billions of dollars in lobbying in campaign contributions to make certain that there is no law on the books to prevent the drug company from doubling or tripling the price that you pay for medicine today. And the result of that is we pay far more than the people of any other country. So when you raise these issues during your campaign, you know what? People start nodding their heads and they say, yeah. That's ridiculous. That's absurd. We should not be paying the highest prices in the world. Drug companies have got to be regulated in one form or another. So the drug companies are saying no,
2: no government regulation of the pricing of our of our products? We, sure. we were afraid that that would be and likely would be a component of a universal health care, a Canadian-style health care. What about the
3: insurance companies? They want— what, if, what is the function of an insurance company? It's not to provide quality care to cost-effective it's to make as much money as, as they possibly can. And, um, you know, what I think makes sense to me is we have right now a fairly popular, successful program called Medicare. It works pretty well for people 65 years of age or older. Why not expand it to everybody? So Medicare will become a universal health care. Exactly.
2: Now, um, aside from the cries of the insurance and pharmaceutical industries, what are things that that actually happened that transpired as a result of— universal health care in Canada that the medical profession warned about here? Meaning, what's something but you
3: see happening in Canada that yeah, the, 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 the didn't go well? No system on earth is a perfect of course. system. And the Canadians will be the first to tell you their system is not perfect. But poll after poll shows that there is enormous pride in Canada with their system. Of course. Very few of those people, Canadians, want to come to the American system. They have problems uh, for non-emergency type Uh, services for uh, certain types of surgeries, knee replacements, and so forth. Uh, Their waiting times are longer than they are comfortable with. On the other hand, if you need to see a doctor, you can get to a doctor pretty quickly. And sometimes when we talk about the Canadian system, we forget, you know, let me tell you something. If you think that most Americans can call the doctor's office today and walk in in a few hours, you are mistaken. There are waiting lines in this country as well. So, the good news is we can learn a lot from the Canadians. We can learn a lot from other countries around the world, all of them who have been doing uh, universal health care for many decades. I want to ask you about growing up. You grew up in Brooklyn. Yep. And your
2: father, what did he do for a
3: living? He was a paint salesman. He was a paint.
2: <laughs> and you have any siblings? Yep,
3: I got an older brother who right. lives in uh, Oxford, England. And what did he do? What's for a living? He was a social worker in England. He was a social worker in England. Yep.
2: And he left to move to England many years ago? he has been over there for ago, many, many years yeah, ago? Yeah, and yeah. just the two of you? Yes. Yeah. And what did your mom do?
3: She, was, uh, she took care of the family.
2: She was the housewife? Yes. Right. Who, who do you think had a greater influence on you, or did they have an equivalent influence on you in terms of your politics of your parents, or your grandparents, for that matter? Well,
3: my politics, I think, developed uh, from the fact that we lived in a rent-controlled apartment in Brooklyn. It's a small three-and-a-half-room apartment. Uh, my father worked very hard, and he had a steady job his entire life. He worked for one company, a keystone paint and varnish company, but he oh. never made a lot of money. And so the fact that we did not have the money to do the things that my mother wanted us to do, rather modest things, uh, impacted my life. What's and a modest thing your mother wanted you to do? Well, she always wanted to own her own home, small home. Never happened. So her dream was someday she would own her own home. And she didn't. So we lived in a rent-controlled apartment for our entire lives growing up. And when she died young, and she never ended up owning her own home. Uh, you know, vacations, we didn't do much of. You know, it's not that we were poor. We were lower middle class. But money was always a, an obstacle and a problem. Hmm. And what I learned at that age was that uh, that problem, that reality exists for people all across this country. And the idea of trying to figure out how we can improve lives of working people is something that I expect uh, settled into my brain when I was a very young kid. So, is it safe to say you don't want people to be given certain things in this
2: world, but you want people to not have to spend too much money on other necessities so they can have some money liberated to do other things in life? I, mean, like, let, no, I would phrase more, it. I uh, tell phrase me it how itself. you would phrase it. I would say that What's progressivism to you?
3: is that, you know, Franklin Delano Roosevelt in a not widely remembered speech, I think it was 1944 in his State of the Union speech a year before he died, he said, you know, in so many words, I'm paraphrasing, you know, we have a Constitution, which is great. We have a Bill of Rights, guarantees you the right freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, freedom of religion, etc., etc. all those enormously important rights. Doesn't guarantee you the right to health care. Doesn't guarantee you the right to at least... Uh, have a job that pays you a living wage. And what he was talking about was the need to broaden our understanding of what human rights are from beyond political rights of freedom of speech and freedom of religion to economic rights. Mm -hmm. So when I talk about the right of all people to have health care, I believe that is a human right. The right of people not to live in abysmal poverty, I think that's a human right when we live in the richest country in the history of the world. So the goal then is to create an economy that works for all of our people, not the kind of economy we have today that works very, very successfully for the 1% and creates enormous levels of income and wealth disparity. My father, who was a political science teacher, really, he taught
2: American government economics in a public high school on Long Island he would say to me that, that essentially his distillation of the Reagan years was Reagan would say You know your taxes are so high. You might not be able to have a swimming pool at your house And if you there's things you want to buy and it's your business What you want to buy it's your business what you want to do with them And so we need to cut making sure the kids in the inner city have clean needles and condoms He's saying all this euphemistically. I mean, there's things that the government is paying for that we shouldn't be paying for, because that's preventing you from buying things you want to buy. And what Reagan wanted to say to people was, don't feel bad about that. He wanted to liberate them on on an emotional level. These people aren't going to get taken care of, and that's
3: okay. We weren't meant to pay for that. Well, that that ideology, I mean, you thought Reagan was conservative, um, where the Republican Party is now sure. is far to the right of where Reagan was, right. incredibly enough. And as I said before, this is what the Koch brothers believe, and this is the ideology that people like Paul Ryan and many others now accept. What they say is, look, every person is an island unto themselves, all right? And if you can go out and make a whole lot of money, you're going to have great health care, your kid's are going to have a great opportunity to go to college, you're going to live in a nice house. But if you are 80 years of age and you don't have much money, I'm sorry. It is not the obligation of the government to have a program like Medicare to take care of you. If you're a worker, and this is true, this is what some of these guys actually believe, and unemployment is high in a region, and I can hire you for 3 bucks an hour or 4 bucks an hour, we don't want the government mandating a minimum wage. You're going to work for me. That's your choice. And if you the choice is between going to Hungary or working for three, four bucks an hour. I
2: offer you a, a wage of what I think is profitable for my
3: company. Exactly. You take it or leave it. You take it or leave it. Uh but you should not be guaranteed uh we should the government should not be in the business of retirement security, i.e. social security. So if you look at the if you look at the Koch brothers' agenda, their goal long term, not tomorrow, is to abolish Social Security, Medicare Medicaid, federal aid to education. And you are seeing Trump moving in those directions. So you got Betsy DeVos, who is now a secretary of education, does not believe in public education. In the House right now, there is legislation that came out of the relevant committee which would make uh, move uh, Social Security toward a private-type system. So all of that ideology is now what uh, pervades the Republican Party, and that's where they want to go.
2: Now, when you say that DeVos doesn't believe in public education, do you mean she doesn't believe in it in the way you believe in it,
3: or she literally doesn't believe in public? Well, education? generally speaking, I think it's fair to say that her belief is that we should move toward abolishing public education and privatizing privatizing the school. But Fully. that's the whole thing: privatizing infrastructure, privatizing social security, privatizing the VA, yeah, the prison, privatizing the prisons, the prisons right. privatizing the postal service. Every one of these issues is being addressed and, and, and moved forward by the Republicans. Um, in your progressive vision,
2: at what point do we decide how much money people can make, meaning if we're going to tax people to take their money from them to build housing for everybody, to provide medical care for everybody, to provide free education for everybody, all of which I'm in favor of. I mean, I would like to see the poor taken care of. I think we... At what point do we do we worry about its impact on the overall
3: American well, economy? Well, uh, first of all, uh, I wouldn't use the word, quote-unquote, taking care of the poor. I think what you want to do is create opportunities for low-income people. It means provide excellent childcare, public education, the opportunity to go to college, job training, so that people are not poor. Now, there are some people who are not going to work, people with severe disabilities, and we have a moral responsibility to take care of them, to take care of senior citizens. But I would hope that the goal is to move toward the ending of poverty and getting lower-income people into the economy so they can earn uh, their own way. Uh, I happen to believe that what we have right now uh, is an obscenity in terms of distribution of wealth and income. Uh, We now have the top one-tenth of 1% owning almost as much wealth as the bottom 90%. In the last 40 years, we have seen a massive transfer of wealth. I'm talking about trillions of dollars going from the pockets of the middle class into the top 1% and in the top one-tenth of 1%. And I think what we have got to say is, of course, they're going to be richer people, and of course, they're going to be poorer people. But that level of wealth inequality and in terms of should income— Should scare us. Yeah, me? Should scare us. Should scare us in terms of income you know, you go around the country, you got mom working, dad working, the kids are working, but 52% of all new income in recent years is going to the top 1%. So you got a great economy for the people on top, but the middle class for decades has been shrinking. People are working longer hours for low wages. Yeah, we got to deal with that. And yes, I believe in progressive taxation. Yeah, I believe that if you're making millions of dollars a year, you're going to have to pay a higher percentage of your income in taxes than somebody in the middle class. You know, that's what a nation is about. And one of the things that I worry about very much is the level of greed, you know, that we now see. You see people making billions and billions and billions of dollars, and they say, that's not enough. I need more tax breaks, and I want you to cut education, and I want you to cut Medicaid, and I want you to cut programs for lower-income people, because I need more tax breaks, because you know $5 billion that I have is not enough. Mm-hmm. We've got to deal with that whole issue of greed. What we do want is an entrepreneurial society. We want people to be able to invest in new products, new businesses, and that's great. But at the end of the day, we cannot be a nation in which a tiny percentage of people has unbelievable wealth while so many other people are struggling. And let me tell you this. This is not just an American issue. Right now, in this planet, on Earth, the six wealthiest people on this planet have more wealth than the bottom half of the world's population, 2.7. It's crazy. It is crazy. It is crazy. And we got to deal with that.
2: What would be a tax policy you would have uh, sought? You want to raise the highest
3: rate to what? During Eisenhower's period, I think the highest income tax was what, 90% or something like that for the very, very, very wealthy. And these are marginal rates. I mean, that means at the very top, that's what you're going to be paying. Uh, but uh, also, you have a situation where there are a lot of very profitable uh, large corporations, General Electric being one, uh, who in a given year could make billions of dollars, is making billions of dollars, not paying a nickel in federal income tax. How is that possible? Because you stash your profits in the Cayman Islands and other tax havens. whether well, you, but either you're an American
2: company that benefits from being an American company, or you're oh, not. Oh, well, wow! You that... want all the you want all the benefits
3: and other responsibilities. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, you're, you're kind of quoting from my speeches here. Yeah. Right. I mean, that, that is the. issue. I may do that from time to time. <laughs> but you know, that is the issue, and it's certainly not just General Electric. And, uh, many of these companies. There's a uh, funny thing. Who's there is responsible for that? What administration was responsible for that? A variety, Republican and Democrat, but it, it is. Um, there's a building in the Cayman Islands. This is really funny. And we got a picture of it. One building, I think it's a four-story building. The you corpora- corporations it houses? Something like 18,000. Right. You know, it's all just a, um, a postal uh, address for a corporation in order to avoid is it. headquarters? Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's up above
2: uh, Dunkin' Donuts there in the Cayman Islands. <laughs> now, I- I'm not that interested in the race and the campaign and the, and the warfare analogies and so forth. But, uh, well, I'll just open with this illustration, which is I lived in an apartment building on Central Park West, and I was walking out of my building, and uh, in was walking then-Senator Barack Obama, who was campaigning for the nomination. And uh, I said hi to him as I was passing him, and I walked out, and I thought, I'm literally, I think I muttered under my breath, good luck to you, pal. You know, she's going to kick your ass her and the husband and their whole network, which I've met these people all the time. I've always felt, you know what I mean? It's always like you always feel the, the weight and the heft of the Clinton machine when you're around them and their friends and associates. They're so networked. And then, of course, he makes history and he wins the nomination. Then he beats the Vietnam War hero in the race. Unbelievable. What were the
3: early vulnerabilities of Hillary Clinton's that you cited? It wasn't even a vulnerability. We would, this is who we ended up taking on. We ended up taking on virtually all of the money class, uh, we ended up taking on every Democratic governor in America. Uh, we took on all the United States senators, Democratic senators except for one. Jeff Merkley of Oregon endorsed me. Almost all Democratic members of the House, almost all Democratic mayors. So we took on the entire Democratic establishment, uh, all of virtually all of the superdelegates. That's what we were up against. But one of the things that we understood from day one is that it was important uh, for us not to develop a super PAC, that we were, we said to the people, look, um, we're not going out to billionaires, so we don't have a super PAC and people can contribute 100,000 bucks. No PAC. Right, no PAC. Right. And we end up, as is now well known, getting millions of contributors' uh, contributions uh, averaging $27 a piece. <laughs> and that was historical, <laughs> see? And what it showed, it showed a couple of things. It showed that if you stood up and were prepared to fight for working people, working people would contribute to your campaigns. There was a um, study of the people who contributed to my campaign done by I think it was the l a Times, and it kind of almost moved me. It was hard to read about the number of low income people people who really did not have a lot of money mm-hmm. who flipped in ten bucks or twenty bucks right. or fifty bucks gave what they can they gave what they can and during the course of the campaign. With one vague exception, it really wasn't that case. I never did a high-dollar uh, fundraise. I never went to a rich person's house, and we had all these folks there. Good for you. you know, the degree that we did fundraisers, uh, they were you know, 50 bucks, and you're in, 100 bucks, yeah. and you're in. Who was the man or woman, or did you even just give us one name of someone, they might have been part of a group, who helped build out that financing strategy for you? Who was responsible well, for I'll that? Well, I'll tell you what happened. Uh, and we stumbled on this, and and um, we raised the vast majority of our money online. And we used the group called Revolution Messaging, and a guy named—they have a lot of good folks there. and A guy named what? Uh, well, it was one guy named uh, Tim Tagaris, who worked very closely with us. And uh, Tim, you know, did an extraordinarily good job, and it turned out— What we learned, and it blew our minds. I think in the first couple of days we raised six million dollars. You know, wow! Who could have believed that? You know, and we ended up raising several hundred million dollars. Point is that people are disgusted with the status quo. They are disgusted with the establishment. They want real and profound change, and it turns out to everybody's surprise, yeah, they're willing to put twenty-five or fifty bucks uh, into a campaign. Uh, that seeks to transform the United States of America.
2: The only reason I ask that question about an individual name of a man or woman is because, in my mind, they obviously deserve to take a huge bow. That, that, that energy exists on the other side of the aisle as well for people who sit there and say, God, how did we get here? You know. Well, let
3: me, let me back it up a little bit to the point sure. you made. Democracy in America today is under siege, and we should be very clear about that. As a result of this disastrous Supreme Court decision on Citizens United, a right. five to four decision, billionaires, large corporations are now able to spend as much money as they want on a political... Limitless. Campaign. Limitless. And they're doing it. You know, they are spending a handful of billionaires, are spending just unbelievable... Like right, the Kochs and the Mercers. Yeah. Exactly. Or exactly. So, to my mind... Uh, And and what it is, it's not only that they are buying elections, then the other side, the good guys, so to speak, have to spend an enormous amount of money. Have to play the same game. Raising money. You would not believe how uh, much time. I'm well aware. Okay. (laughs) You probably get hit up every day. This is my major issue,
2: campaign finance reform. Okay.
3: All right. And it should be. Because it... It's the linchpin of everything. Exactly. It's the good linchpin of everything. You're right. I I worked for many, many years.
2: Uh, Up in Maine, I was involved in the Maine Clean Campaign thing 20 years ago. Got involved in the Nine Sundays program, Marvin Kalb, at the Shorenstein Center. and, Mm -hmm. and, And the thing that we all came to was was that we don't need ceilings on spending. We need floors. We need to say that if there's media saturation for a statewide campaign, is media saturation is, let's say, $35 million. If you've got $35 million, you can reach everybody with your message. And people can spend more than you, but we've got to make sure that you, you have at least $35 million. We have
3: to have floors, not ceilings. What do you think about that well, idea? I think there are a number of ways to skin the cat. I, uh, the position that I feel comfortable with is to say, you want to run against me, you go out, and you show that there's a level of support for your candidacy, uh, you get you raise uh, five or ten dollar contributions from X number of people, uh, and then for every dollar more you raise. Uh, the uh, government will put in $5. There was a matching. Yeah, matching. Because
2: um, the other thing I learned at that time, which you talk about the corporate media and their role in this whole thing, uh, that you know, the number one, or I shouldn't say the number one, but among the top enemies and among the top obstacles to this campaign finance reform is the National Association of Broadcasters. because yeah, They're shoving as much money in their pockets with these political ads as they possibly can during those cycles.
3: Uh, Citizens' United was a real boom for them. Horrible. Yeah, you're right. We're not going to move toward Medicare for all. We're not going to deal with education. We're not going to deal with infrastructure and certainly not deal with climate change unless we get got a handle on... Or foreign policy. Or foreign policy. All right. So what you got on that issue, it is clear that Citizens United has to be overturned and we need to move toward public funding of elections so that billionaires cannot dictate public policy. The Koch brothers invite Republican candidates who will line up, they just line up, Sheldon Adelson from Nevada, they line up, what can I do for you, Mr. Koch? And that's why the Republican Party is, to a large degree, where it is today. So campaign finance reform, moving to public funding of elections, is to me enormously important. Some of the money spent on
2: campaigns today is used for political consultants like Ed Rollins... He's the person that gets the dirt on opponents as well as on the candidate that hired him. The first thing I do is I sit down and I say, pretend I'm your priest. You confess, yeah. all, your, confess yeah. all your sins. I've heard it all. You know, I don't care. They always lie. And when then it does come out, they go, you know, I never thought that was going to happen. Take a listen to Ed Rollins' life in the muck of politics on here's thing.org.
1: For all the times you begged for soda, get her premium cocktail capsules made with real fruit juice and craft bitters. For all the times you demanded tacos for dinner, get her the Bartesian that mixes margaritas in just 30 seconds. Make Mom's Mother's Day and all the 364 days that aren't Mother's Day with a Bartesian cocktail maker at $50 off. Visit bartesian.com backslash mother now to get $50 off the Bartesian premium cocktail maker. Artesian, premium cocktails
0: on demand.
4: Lifelock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com/slash iHeart. That's lifelock.com/slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here.
2: I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Bernie Sanders is a distant cousin of comedian Larry David. Hello,
3: hello. hello. Enough with the hellos. Let's let's do this.
2: They both grew up in Brooklyn, and David said during the campaign he would watch Sanders and repeat everything he said.
3: We're doomed!
2: David recognized the dialect, and he knew he could, quote, talk like that, so he did on Saturday Night Live.
3: I'm the only candidate up here who's not a billionaire. I don't have a super PAC. I don't even have a backpack. <laughs> I carry my stuff around loose in my arms like a professor, <laughs> you know, between classes. I own one This
2: abrasive, underwear. rumpled <laughs> outsider has become an unlikely leader for the left, especially after Hillary Clinton's defeat last
3: November. You know, it, um, the Democrats in Vermont have their, you know, they, they like every other state, people. Go to go to go to a hotel and they gather and they celebrate their victories and, and I for the wounds. first time in many yeah. years I didn't go which I think people noticed but I just uh, was not inclined you know we had won some good victories in Vermont a young man won for lieutenant governor who was very progressive but I was in no mood to celebrate it was uh, it was quite a depressing night what do you think she did wrong. I don't want—you know, I'm asked that question a million times, and I don't want to relive the campaign. Look, sorry, but I think but here's what the facts are. Right. All right. Uh, the Democratic Party in general is in trouble and has been in trouble for for a long time. Uh, in the last nine years or so, uh, Democrats have lost not just the White House and the Senate and the House in Washington. There's a lot of
2: state houses. That's right. right.
3: In fact, there are like 25 states in America. Almost have where the Democratic Party is, in some cases, non-existent. Right. And I visited those states. Yeah, they were extremely weak. Yeah. Um, and these are some of the poorest states in the United States. But when her... I say what she did wrong, what I'm trying to interject is that
2: is that, forget about what she did wrong, was she handed the bill for that? Was she handed the bill for a weak,
3: enervated, unimaginative Democratic Party? I think the, the problem is, over the years, um, money has played a—you know, we talked about campaign— uh, funding, and money has had a very significant influence on the Democratic Party. So I think, you know, if you look back to the years of FDR or even Harry Truman, and you go to a person on the street and you say, which is the party of the working class in America? Everybody knew it, right? It was the Democratic Party. You go outside today and you say, what is the party of the dem- uh, of the working class in America? The Republican Party. Well, maybe, but no one really believes <laughs> yeah. that it's They're quicker the dem- to say the Republicans than maybe, the Democrats. Maybe. All right. But it's certainly, you know, no Among Trump supporters, I should yeah, say. Yeah, yeah. So... Uh, And what has happened is I think the Democrats became a party of the upper middle class uh, on the West Coast, on the East Coast, here in New York City. Uh, And they forgot. And they forgot that while the economy under Obama actually did improve, certainly from where he took over after the Wall Street uh, debacle, um, the truth was and is— that millions and millions of people are struggling today right. to put food on the table, right. that people have seen a working decline. three jobs. They're working two jobs. They're working three jobs. They're worried to death about their kids, who right. in all likelihood will have for the first time in modern history a lower standard of living than their parents. Right. They can't afford health care. They can't afford direction. college. Yeah. They can't afford child care. They can't afford housing. That is the reality that the Democrats kind of forgot about. Kind of forgot about, and Trump comes there, who's a phony from day one. Right, and Trump comes there. He says, "I'm hearing you. I understand that your job went to Mexico. Your job went to China. I understand that Wall Street has enormous power. I understand that the drug companies are charging you very, very high prices." I'm the champion of the powerless. I am the champion. I mean, one of the great, you know, absurdities of all time. And of course, he was lying through his teeth, and we've seen that in the first seven months of his presidency that uh, virtually all of his policies have geared toward the billionaire class, and he's turned his back big time on working families, et cetera, et cetera. But he understood something that many Democrats did not, and that is that the global economy has worked very well for some people, but a whole lot of people have been displaced and hurt and ignored. No one even knew that they are alive. Turn on the damn television. No one is talking about that guy who's working two or three jobs. Median family income, the average male worker today, is earning less in real dollars than he did 40 years ago. why do you think they're not talking about that in mainstream media or even cable? Well, that's a whole other story. I mean, you know, media— What what media do you think treated you fairly? Uh, We did not do well with the corporate media. I will say that. The New York Times was terrible. The Washington Post was bad. Wall Street Journal— ABC, almost—in we. I, in, in the last chapter of my book, let me do an advertisement here, okay? Please, please. I wrote a book. You can do whatever you want. It's called Our Revolution. That's what the book is. Last chapter deals with media. And the major critique, it's not me moaning and groaning, you know, I'm not Donald Trump. All oh, the media hates me and all that stuff. Right, That's okay. not the case. What media largely does uh, is ignore the most important issues facing this country— they're not increasingly—what they are into is what I would call political gossip. There are studies out there that will tell you that on television, for example, an enormous amount of time talked about Donald Trump's personal life, Hillary Clinton and our emails, Hillary Clinton and the Clinton family, all of that crap that doesn't mean anything to anybody in America. But what about that family where they can't afford to send their kids to college? How much time do you think you're spending on television? Right. What about health care? I'm asking you a question. You watch TV? Have you seen one program on the major networks talking about the health care system that exists in countries around the world compared to the United States? No.
2: Only oh. Canada. They reference Canada. They, they reference it, yeah. but
3: don't you think— but Nothing comprehensive. Don't you think it might be a good idea for the news media to get around, go to the U.K., look at their system, go to Denmark, look at their system, go to Canada? You don't see that. What about income and wealth inequality? Do you see outrage in the media and say, what are we going to do about income and wealth inequality? I was amazed. Uh, There was a study done on media coverage of the campaign. And it turns out that on the Sunday news shows, it ended up that I ended up talking about poverty, using the word poverty more, I think, almost than everybody else combined. And I didn't use it a whole lot. How often do we talk about poverty? Forty three million people are living in poverty in this country. You hear much discussion? Why is that? What are we going to do about that?
2: Only once the Bachelor goes off the air, we, you know, we have to watch the Bachelor and find out what's going All on.
3: All right. So the point is, you know, media is interested in a lot of personal stuff, a lot of political gossip. In my view, exactly. And they are not talking about the real issues facing the American. So if you're out there and you're in Kansas or in your West Virginia and you're working two or three jobs and you're saying, "Who the hell cares about me?" Who really worries that my kid Uh, will have a lower standard of living than I
2: do? I'll have a guy. I will embrace this man who's a billionaire, maybe not to the tune that he claims he is, but I'll embrace this guy that's this vulgar, you know, uncurious... Uh, all these uh, so many limitations Unqualified in every sense Unqualified in every sense I mean unfit to serve on a, 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 a mentally I believe but the, I'm going to embrace this guy because at least he's pretending he wants yeah, to right. understand me Exactly He's going to pretend give me somebody who'll pretend over somebody who isn't even here because I think you made a good point or at least this is what I'm gleaning from what you said maybe you didn't make this point which is that Hillary Clinton stood up there and she's the standard bearer for a flabby tired unimaginative out of touch Democratic
3: Party. Well, I'll get in trouble if I say that. She, you she, said right, it, right? right, right. right. She,
2: she, okay. She she gets shot down, or she runs out of gas, or whatever you what metaphor you want to use, because she represents this group that is pe- that people just don't have the same feelings about that they did thirty and forty years ago.
3: Look, this is not complicated stuff. You got to address the people who are hurting right now. Incredible pain in this country. Incredible pain. You know this opioid epidemic and the heroin epidemic that we're experiencing is called by the doctors and scientists who study it, a disease of despair. You know what that means? True. Sure. All right. It means you go to West Virginia, go to communities that I have in West Virginia, unemployment, sky high, wages, pathetic. People have given up on life. And they're turning to drugs, they're turning to alcohol, they're turning to suicide. Soul sickness. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Two last quick things.
2: One is uh, uh, when you were in college, uh, you went uh, to—you started out at uh, uh, Brooklyn College and you finished at the University of Chicago. What did you get a degree in? Political science. In political science. You didn't go to law school? No No, law school for you. And when you were there, uh, you—I read this quote where you said uh, that— you told the LA Times in 1991 that in Chicago you began to understand the futility of liberalism liberalism as opposed I'm well, it's to kind of what we've been
3: talking about right. today i happen to believe in a politics which is based on the needs and the energy of working people and uh, not just uh, a liberal elite and um, i think the goal and you know i've just written a book which has this mission in mind and we have some success already, is to involve more and more people in the political process. In the UK, as you know, they had an election a couple of months ago, 70 percent of their people voted. We had a presidential election, 56, 57 percent voted. Off election, midterm elections, 36, 37. Mm-hmm voted. That's terrible. Our job is to bring working people, young people, into the political process. If we can raise the voter turnout in a presidential election from 60 to 70 percent, the entire world changes, and it changes for Congress as well. You're up for re-election next
2: year, and then beyond that, do you see... uh even a possibility that you would want to seek, not even the same office, thing. would you ever consider running for vice president? If you believed you could be in a team, with, you could well, be in, on a ticket with somebody that was very likely to win,
3: would you uh, much, have a taste for it now? Much too early to, it to too talk early. about, yeah.
2: Right. yeah. you think you got the energy
3: for it? I feel fine, thank God. I'm yeah. blessed with good health.
2: Right. What did you think about uh, uh, Larry David's impersonation of you when I was with him on SNL?
3: He did it better than me. <laughs>
2: <laughs> that, that was probably the funniest line I heard in all the SNL we did. I did the Trump thing and all the sh- crazy shtick that they've had me do, which has been not a lot of fun, I must say, having to channel Trump. But my favorite was with you when Larry said, my opponent has four pairs of underwear. I have only two pairs of underwear. I wash them out in my sink in my hotel room and put them on the radiator at night. Uh, Larry is, well, you know him very well. Huh? I know him very well, yeah. yeah he's yeah. brilliant. Yeah. yeah. But have you enjoyed all that, or do you, or do you think this kind of mockery? Because I'm very interested. in uh, no, it's not I, helping.
3: I, no, it's uh, no. I thought Larry did a great job.
2: But are we, in terms of Trump, do you think that we're we're kind of uh, making him a little too cuddly and a little too funny, and we're taking people's mind off something really I more serious? I think what we have
3: to focus on 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 Trump uh, is what he is doing. You know, you know, we, it, every day he says something that it's absurd. But you know, think about this: is a guy who told the American people. He was going to provide good health care for, quote-unquote, everybody. Remember that? He supported throwing 32 million people off of health insurance. Uh, You know, this is a guy uh, who, you know, made all kinds of promises to working people, uh, and he has turned his back completely on that. It's the old line that happened during Buckley-Vallejo when someone
2: said, uh, they said, cash is speech. And an opponent of that decision said, well, if cash is speech, the guy with the most cash speaks loudest.
3: Right. Taking that that idea that speech is money, what happens if you don't have any money? Right. That means you don't have any Speechless. speech. That's right. So I think what we, you know, all of us believe in free speech. It's one of the important elements of our Constitution. But I believe in democracy, and I believe in the right of all people to have the ability to influence the political process, not just the billionaire class.
2: Well, I really have not been much involved in in the political process in terms of fundraising for the last eight years. I did fall victim to that thing where when Obama won his second term, I could say, like, we're good. This is my guy in there for a second term when he can really get some things done. But I must say, I hope you're proud of what you did. Because what you accomplished is an amazing thing. You accomplished an amazing thing. I mean, if it, it was so close. You really had a shot. It was almost
3: there. Well, what I am most proud of is that we have brought millions of people into the political process. And I said earlier, ideas that seem far out and crazy, like Medicare for all or making public colleges, universities, tuition-free. They're kind of mainstream ideas now because people are talking about them. They're saying, why not?
2: Senator Sanders' new book, Bernie Sanders' Guide to Political Revolution, is just out. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing.
1: 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring.
3: Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A Redwood Forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent
4: California?
3: Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.